Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today is August 20th. My name is Tyler. Of course, as always, you have Critique and Nick here as well. Before we begin, please follow, please share the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Um, as always, today we do have a few exciting stories for you, of course, and we're going to be kicking it off, of course, with our favorite person in the world, Donald Trump. So what do we got, Nick? So without me, what's the point? So Trump claimed that he has the best poll numbers among Republican candidates in American history. He also announced his intention to skip the first primary debate. Instead, he'll do an interview with Tucker Carlson. Now, the RNC confirmed that they hadn't heard anything about Trump's debate attendance, and in a Truth Social post, Trump stated, quote, As everyone is aware, my poll numbers over a wonderful field of Republican candidates are extraordinary. In fact, I am leading the runner-up, whoever that may now be, by more than 50 points. Reagan didn't do it, and neither did others. People know my record, one of the best ever, so why would I debate? I'm your man. Make America great again. So Pratik and Tyler, if Trump doesn't show up, what do other candidates have to do to beat him in the primary? The big problem with all this stuff is that with without Trump showing up, all these people that are contestants, all they will talk about is Trump. If Trump was to show up to the debate, all they would have talked about would have been Donald Trump. So either way, it's a win-win for Trump. And the problem is, is that with when Trump is in the race, he's the center of attention, he's the spotlight, everyone's talking about him. Anything he does is more relevant than anybody else and anything else anybody else does. So the only way, in my opinion, that you could beat Donald Trump is you just have to learn to not talk about him. That's the only way. If the news quit talking about Trump, if Trump had less scandals come out, if the if like the legal people all decided to go on break for two months and not decide to investigate anything, and if all of these politicians actually had opinions and thoughts and viewpoints about what they would do when they became president and discussed that and just avoided talking about Trump, that's the only way you can beat Trump. But I don't think that's ever going to happen because the media loves Trump. The Democrats only talk about Trump. He's the only re- they're the only reason he's relevant. And then the other side, like all these other contestants they don't have any opinions or views or anything so all they can talk about is the good old days when trump was there and how they can make it better than trump did which is pointless because trump's still there so that's my thoughts i just don't think there's anything you can do really do and trump being the candidate is basically inevitable inevitable is inevitable (laughs) yes um so A few points here. I think you made a good point in terms of Trump being the point of focus for many of these candidates. A lot of, you know, the messaging from the majority of the candidates has been strictly anti-Trump. So someone like Chris Christie, for instance, is going to suffer during this debate because pretty much all of his platform at this point is going after Trump. Now, that's probably his best strategy. But when we're talking about actually being on a debate stage when Trump isn't there to actually attack, that's going to be a big hindrance to him. But apart from that, we just got to think of total view of the debates overall. It's not just the fact that they're going to be talking about Trump. It's that who's going to tune into these debates? Who's going to watch the highlights of the debates if Trump isn't there? Because a lot of the viewership, the excess viewership comes from the fact that people want to be entertained because they know Donald Trump for all his, his misgivings. Even if you hate Donald Trump, you would still love to watch that guy on the debate stage because it's entertainment. And if you're a political person and you're like, and you enjoy this kind of stuff, that is your Super Bowl. Seeing Trump go after people. Um, so I, I think they're going to be down in viewership. These candidates aren't going to get as much exposure. They can't t- take jabs directly at Trump. But the candidates that don't focus a lot of their messaging specifically against Trump, like Vivek Ramaswamy, 
are going to actually probably get a boost from this. And I think specifically Vivek, because he is such an excellent speaker. I, I've been like listening to him more and more now. And again, whether you, what, whether you agree or not with many of his opinions, you know, abolishing certain federal agencies. We talked about that, that, that test for the voting age. He has a few other opinions that are um, somewhat more extreme. He actually sees himself as a bit more of a revolutionary than someone's trying to continue the status quo. He sounds phenomenal when he says it. Like I was hearing him talk specifically about healthcare. He was, of course, in the pharma industry, so he has some in-depth knowledge, but he was so clear and concise that I think he stands a real chance after these debates of being a strong number two in the polls. There are even some polls today showing that Ramaswamy, um, at least um, it, it looks like the poll was called RMB. There was an RMB survey. It's the only one I've seen, but it basically said that he's actually a number two to Trump right now. He actually overtook DeSantis and his social media strategy has been insane. I think that's going to continue after the debates. A lot of his highlights are going to be perpetuated on social media and he's, he's going to benefit from this. But overall, it's going to be really hard to overtake Trump in any serious manner strictly from the debates. Well, what do you guys think about the fact that Trump is planning on going on Tucker Carlson's independent show at the same time that de the debate is actually happening? Tyler, you talked about after the fact, people watching the debate for the highlights. But what about during it? Do you feel like not as many people are actually going to tune in if Trump is on another platform live streaming? Sure. But let, let's get Nick's point here. Nick, you answer your own question here because we need to get you in the conversation. Yeah. So look, I... Without Trump being on the stage for them to attack, I don't know what they have to do. I think all of the candidates, it's like a prisoner's dilemma, right? If they're all in it for themselves, they're all going to fail. If they all decide to team up and take down Trump, I think they can do it. But are they actually going to be able to coordinate as all the Republican candidates? No, there's absolutely no shot. So I think that if they all teamed up, got on the stage, and uniformly said, the election was real, Trump lost, he's going to lose again, don't vote for him, the guy is, you know, all these different negatives about him. If they came out and said that, I think they'd have a shot. I don't think they're going to do it, though, because, again, like people like Vivek, people like DeSantis, they want Trump's voter base. And if they start saying all the things that Trump really loves as a voter base or Trump's voter base really loves, I, I just think they're going to lose those voters ultimately, even if they take Trump down and therefore they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. So it's a tricky balance. And like you said, people like Chris Christie, they can come out. Mike Pence can come out. But, yeah, if Trump isn't there... Chris Christie and Mike Pence, what are they going to say? Plus, with the format of the debate, there's no opening statements. It's just responding to questions, and you get a 45-second close. There's a spin room after where you can go talk to journalists and say, oh, I did such a great job, and here's my vision for America. But unlike previous debates, every other debate, candidates start with, here's my unique vision. Here's why you should vote for me as a candidate. And this time, Fox News, they're not going to let them do that. So... It's going to be a very strange debate, and I think they're trying to promote more conversation on actual issues as opposed to just people's platforms. But at the same time, this is a first debate. No one knows people's platforms. Like, if you asked a random person, what does Asa Hutchinson believe in? What is Doug Burgum's platform? I wouldn't even be able to tell you that. I have no we idea what Doug Burgum stands for. We all believe in Make America Great Again. Yeah, no. I. So it's, it's a tricky <laughs> thing, man. It's a tricky thing. But ultimately, I don't think they have a shot. I think one big issue is like, I think with what Nick is saying, there is a benefit though. And it's like, there is a large segment of the of the party. I would probably say around 30% that are like or 30 to 40% that are the anti-Trump Republican base, right? So like you have the Trump side, those are like the majority, it's around 60%. Those people are gonna potentially become larger and larger because eventually they will all consolidate around Trump when he's the candidate as it is. 
But there is a base of people that are the anti-Trump people, that are like the ones that all of these other 20 candidates are trying to capture. Out of those 20 candidates, these seven people are the ones that made it. If you don't count Trump because Trump's not going to be there. So like these are the people that are your most like have the highest potential to actually accomplish something in the, you know, election cycle compared to all these other randos. So out of these people, I think the main focus should be that these people should discuss what their own platforms are. They should talk about what they're going to do, talk about what their vision is and talk about what makes them different. Because I think the main focus is always about attacking Trump, always talking about, you know, like Trump did this and Trump did that. And like the issue should be what makes it so that I as a Republican voter, because me being the only Republican out of you three on the show, I as a Republican voter, why would I switch from voting for somebody that I already know, a known commodity for someone that is an unknown? And if that if that selling point can't be sold to me, I'm less likely to change how I voted in the past because I know that what that person did with this new person, I have zero clue. And the weirdest thing is this might be the first debate, which it doesn't have the front runner attending the debate in the history of the of all the debate cycles. So you're probably not going to have as many viewership, but that also means is that the people that you're that are your viewers, that's your target audience because you're eliminating all the people that would have supported Trump anyway because the people that are supported Trump are not going to listen to your like listen to whatever you have to talk about is they already know who they're voting for. So you it's like a very like targeted audience in this situation. And I think that this is like the time where they need to literally just like not talk about Trump because them talking about Trump isn't going to benefit anything. Like you're going out and attacking Trump. That's like the, that's like what everybody's going to do. But even you notice like, with what Nick was saying, with the RDS stuff, RDS said that, you know, the election wasn't like, you know, everything was correct and Trump's lying about the election. His percentages dropped from 20% to 13%. So that tells you that that's not a winning message. So you're better off not talking about the election at all. Because the thing is, who cares? If Trump is not there, the election conversation is really irrelevant. Because the people that are not voting for Trump, the election aspect, maybe the impact would be that, oh yeah, you know, he lost to Biden. That's why we need to vote for this other person. But apart from that, like, it's not even a conversation starting point. You don't really even need to talk about it. So you literally just need to focus on what your vision is, what you will do if you get elected. And if you do that, then potentially you might get elected. But the problem is that you got people like Mike Pence and Chris Christie there. And when you think of Mike Pence, all you can think of is Donald Trump because there's nothing relevant about that person. Person altogether and with Chris Christie apart from Donald Trump he has nothing to talk about he doesn't have, he's like yeah. a he's like a pointless person so he that's the challenge is. here <laughs> it is a challenge and I, so I want to respond quickly to uh, Nick's question about um, Tucker Carlson in that interview but then I'm also going to pose a new question about should we and I know there's no legal way to do this should we mandate in a way presidential candidates attending these debates is there is there something there but first responding to the Tucker Carlson interview so Trump again is so savvy on social media in terms of media in general he is going to pop off online after this Tucker Carlson interview Tucker Carlson Carlson, of course, was ousted from Fox News. 
moved on to Twitter where he's been doing his own show. And in terms of viewership, he's still doing very well. He certainly has a cult following. He's done much better than people like uh, Megyn Kelly or Bill O'Reilly who were left Fox. And then you kind of don't really hear that much from them again. But he seems to stay in the news. Um, he's still respected, especially within re Republican spaces. And I think Trump knows that his fan base kind of, you know, leans towards someone like Tucker Carlson. Those highlight clips from Tucker Carlson's interview with Trump, where Trump, I'm sure, will just rip into anyone on that debate stage saying how pathetic they are, how much losers they are, and how none of it matters because he's already the nominee and all that. That's going to be circulated on social media more than any of these debate uh, highlights. So look, Trump's winning from all this in that regard. But moving on to what I was saying before, it's like, should we, I know there's no legal way to do this. In a perfect world, if we could have every presidential candidate actually show up on a debate stage, tell the country what they want to do, how they should do it, I think that's a very valuable and helpful thing. I don't know of a legal path to actually get them to commit to doing that. But, you know, I would love to live in a country where if you're going to run for office, you have to face the public in front of the people that you're actually going to be facing. So what are your guys' thoughts on just that discussion in general? Or is it an immediate shutdown? No chance. Why even bother talk about it? I don't think there will ever be a chance of that. For example, there's a reason why the Democrat debates and Republican debates don't no longer allow third party candidates. You know, when there's a third party candidate up there, maybe they'll have a shot of winning. But when the Republicans and Democrats have a stranglehold over the political system in this country, there's no shot of having all the different candidates running all up on the stage. And the other thing is that, you know, when you think of that in the primary process, you know, are all the candidates. I mean, this first debate, it has a polling threshold where if you're below 1% in a national poll or below 40,000 individual contributions, you're not even allowed to show up and debate. And so right off the gate, they start to really weed people out and constrain it. But at the same time, the RNC, like here's, here's where Trump is different than all of that. Trump, if he leaves the Republican Party and decides to run on his own, the Republicans are going to lose the election easily. And so the RNC knows that if he does that, they have no shot of winning. And so they're never going to end up provoking him or they're just going to play it safe, basically, where even though the RNC wants to assert that they are the ultimate authority over who can run on their party platform, you know, Trump has too much influence at this point to really have for them to, you know, actually have some power in the negotiation. They have none. They have no leverage. And so even though, for example, this year, the same way that they did in 2020 and 2016, they're going to say all Republican candidates need to sign a pledge so that you're going to support whoever the eventual Republican nominee is. Trump guaranteed is not going to sign any such pledge. Even if he says verbally he's fine with it, he's only fine with it as long as he wins. If he loses, there's no way he's going to support the Republican candidate. And if anything, like unless he's like totally disgraced, ends up in jail and there's a huge issue, like if he's just like walking around as a normal politician, Trump is going to stay in this race no matter what, I think. And so, yes, Tyler, it would be nice for all the candidates to be on the same platform and for everyone to see what the ideas are. But if anything, I think that's more of like a third party website so that you can compare all the different candidates easily versus having like 50 people on one stage all trying to talk over each other. And I just I just think that would be a mess. And if anything, like people aren't good with a lot of choices. I mean, what's the classic example? Like you give someone like 40 things to decide from or three things. And like with three things, it's like, okay, I can make the decision. But once you get like too many variables involved, it's like, oh God, I don't know. There's too many options. So yeah, Pratik, what are your thoughts? So before um, Tyler goes on to the next story, 
Um, I wanted to tell you guys who are the candidates that are going to be on the debate, so we know. So, um, eight, eight candidates say that say they have met the qualifications for a spot on stage in Milwaukee, aka the plebs. Yeah, aka the plebs. <laughs> um, Donald Trump, obviously, but he's not going to show up. And then the rest of them are Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie. Doug Burgum and Mike Pence. So this is like, you know, whenever you remember whenever you were in school and yet, you know, like they came up with the honor roll list, like who are the people that really matter? These are the people that had like the best grades and like throughout the class. Like that's these people. Like there are like 21 candidates currently in the race for the GOP. And then these are the eight people that are the people that stand out out of that 21. And out of that, Donald Trump's not showing up. So the next title is um, for, the, um, for the next segment is called The RDS, The VEC, and All the Plebs. So Tyler, tell us about The Plebs, The RDS, and The VEC. Yeah, so we got with the Republican debate in Milwaukee on Fox News scheduled for this Wednesday, August 23rd. And without Trump, the spotlight now shines on the anticipated clash between DeSantis and Ramaswamy. A leaked memo from a pro-DeSantis pack proposes using derogatory nicknames like Fake Vivek and Vivek the Fake, which are awful, by the way, to target Ramaswamy <laughs> during the debate. Vivek's team fights back, labeling DeSantis' lines as robotic and originating from his super pack, which I'm surely sure they are, while urging a fresh start. With RDS emphasizing his war on woke stance as Iowa's uh, presidential con uh, contest looms just five months away, GOP voters seem to be doubting his core message. Can this debate revive RDS's chances, or will it help Vivek Ramaswamy improve his numbers? Now, as I mentioned before, Vivek is gaining ground on DeSantis, um, so this is going to be a clash between these two guys. So, putting it out there, what are your guys' thoughts? I think it's good for Vivek Ramaswamy. I think with Vivek Ramaswamy, the guy literally went from being a nobody to a someone. He has nothing to lose from anything that happens in any of these presidential coverages, any debates, or anything that he does politically, because nobody knew who he was before he decided to enter into the cycle of 21 different Republican candidates. So now, with Vivek Ramaswamy, the thing that he has to make sure he does is, he has to make sure that he doesn't kill off his campaign. Sometimes it sounds very easy, but we've always had contestants in the past that have started out very well, and then they've um, fizzled out. Like, for example, in the Democratic debates last time in 2020 or 2019 they had Kamala Harris so Kamala Harris was like the knight in shining armor she was like one of the top contestants whenever that debate cycle began it was between her and like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and then out of that Kamala Harris really fell off the cliff nobody really cared about Kamala Harris after the first debate or so because she did she failed to impress same thing could be said on the Republican side whenever um, if you go back into 2015, you had candidates like Scott Walker. Now, Scott Walker was supposed to be like one of the up and coming future like Republican co contestants. He was going to be the face of the party. They had Jeb Bush as the front runner and the people that didn't support Jeb Bush were on the Scott Walker train. Both of those candidates both fell off the cliff really fast, and by the second or third debate, they weren't even they didn't even have like 15 to 20 percentage points. It was like they both kind of fall, fell apart. I think the same challenge is here, where with somebody like Vivek Ramaswamy, you have no idea who he is. So the limited amount of interactions and the limited amount of stuff that we do know about him, 
he has still risen to the top of the ranks amongst all these other randos. Now, RDS, you knew a lot about him. Everybody knows who Ron DeSantis is in the country. Everyone knows who Ron DeSantis is. Everyone knows who Nikki Haley is. Everyone knows who Chris Christie is, Tim Scott is, and those, and uh, Mike Pence, obviously. Those people, like, they don't have as much to lose, but they're never, they're not going to gain much. Their challenge is, is that everybody already knows everything that they have to offer. There's nothing special about any so, of critique. those people. Who, you don't think so? What does the average person know about Tim Scott? Nothing. I, yeah, what do I, they know I, about I Nikki Haley? Nothing. They know South Carolina, maybe. They know other things. Fair. But, like, do they know anything about their platform? Heck, I don't even know Tim Scott's full platform. Well, I would say I don't know their platform. But what I also would say is that you know who they are. So, like, before the election debate started, or before the election season started, rather, you knew you've heard of Nikki Haley and you'd heard of Tim Scott. You'd also have heard of Chris Christie and you remembered him. When from you the say last you, debates. are you speaking to someone that follows I'm talking politics to an or like average, a regular person? Average Republican primary listener. You're li- because Republican primary listeners, people that are going to listen to these debates, are going to probably be much because Trump's not in it now. So you have to remember, Trump being absent from these debates really like filters out a lot of the other people that would have watched, that would have had more like, you know, that may have had less knowledge about all these potential contestants. But we all get one vote. At the end of the day, whether you have more or less knowledge, that viewership actually contributes a lot to that's, people actually that's, deciding that's what their vote is, even if they're not hardcore political but no, people. No, but they might I'm, see someone and say, hey, that guy actually makes a good point. But now that opportunity is taken but away. But what I'm saying is like, the average Republican listener or voter may not watch these primary debates. You're filtering out a large segment of people because Donald Trump, the front runner, is not in these debates. So now you're focused on a high level elite group of people that are watching this debate because these are the people. These are the people that are like, okay, I voted for Donald Trump, but I've been like, I've been, I've stayed tuned to this like Republican primary season. I know who all these people are. I want to find out who out of these people, you know, really, you know, hits my psyche. They really make me want to go vote for them. That you're hitting a certain group of people. If everybody was there, then it's a broader audience, but this is a targeted audience. So with the targeted audience, the thing is out of those people, we, everybody already has a uh, has an opinion about some of those other people that I've already talked about. Every one of these people probably has an opinion about Mike Pence. Every one of these people probably has an opinion about Ron DeSantis. And I think with Chris Christie, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Doug Burgum, it's a little bit more like we don't know. But out of those people, none of these people probably knew anything about Doug Burgum. And before this primary season, nobody even knew Vivek Ramaswamy existed. So now, like, out of those, I just think that if you filter out a lot of these potential, you know, audience members, I think that's where it nails down to is Vivek Ramaswamy needs to come in and be better than everybody else. And I think he can be. The question is, is that whether people that would be listening that are the non-Trump, anti-Trump voter base, that is the ones watching, will they be like, all right, well, you know, I'm not voting for Trump, obviously, unless he's the last option. So Vivek Ramaswamy is my guy. If Vivek Ramaswamy can make that sale, I can see him making a boost in the polls. Because frankly, I don't really see any of these other like, you know, less than 5% people really shaking or breaking anything from this one debate because you're only getting a small segment of the people probably watching in the first place. Well, the thing is, Pratik, I think I agree with you that Trump would suck any oxygen out of the room. Like he would, that's why people would watch, right? And that's why people are going to tune out because Trump's not there. But at the same time, I think for those voters, yes, you're right that I think I think they know 
they have an opinion about Ron DeSantis. They have an opinion about these other candidates. But do they really know how they're going to interact with other candidates and actually be up there on the debate stage? That's fair, too. Like, one thing with Ron DeSantis is people don't know what he's going to be like with the other candidates. He's never had to debate any of them before. And so part of it is, yes, people are going to come in with their preconceived notions of which candidates are stronger than which others. But at the same time, once you actually get on the stage, there are these standout moments in every single debate across both political parties where some candidate that everyone kind of writes off early has a big break in the very beginning, makes a name for themselves. And if anything, I think Trump not being here gives that one person, whoever it's going to be, if it's Vivek or someone else, it gives them more of a chance to have more airtime, more attention, and actually make a breakout performance, as opposed to if Trump was there, he would just try to shut them down and, and it would be a whole big mess. But now they actually have a chance to make a name for themselves, like you were saying. Tyler? Well, I, I think they do have a chance to make a name for themselves. But as we were saying before, the audience is so much smaller. So it's like you have that highlight spot. But without trumping in the picture, for instance, if I'm on social media, the likelihood I come across a debate highlight is significantly reduced if Trump's not there. So I understand they might be spotlighted with less viewership. But Without Trump, I, I, I just don't see them being able to really make that massive money. You know what's funny, though? I think that actually weakens Trump because all the highlights, that's part of the reason why people like him so much. He's hilarious. Once he actually gets in your feed and you look up more things, you're like, oh, wow. You know, not only is he funny from the first 2016 debate cycle, but he's actually got some good points. And then you start getting deeper and deeper and you're like, wow, I actually like this guy. And so I think yeah. that by another candidate... You know, by Trump just not dominating the clips, like you were saying, I don't know. I still I still think other people may have more of a shot to to differentiate themselves and actually get some exposure, because right now, as it stands in the national media, Trump has all of the attention. And if you have an event like this, like, for example, Nikki Haley, she at least got some spotlight right after her town hall. Same thing with Tim Scott. Same thing with these other candidates after the town hall events. You don't hear about them anymore. And so this debate is one of those other events. Like they'll get their their minutes of fame for like a day or two after the debate. You'll have some clips circulate. But I think if Trump was at the debate, I don't know. I think he would just dominate the conversation once again. Hey, look, which he hey, probably he will probably anyway. Would. Yeah, look, you, you could totally be right. The only thing I'd say is with the Carlson interview, he might come in after after the fact and anything said, just rip these people to shreds and those highlights might still exist. But look, you, you totally could be right. This could be you know a watershed moment for one of these candidates. But let me go speak to the RDS uh, uh, Vivek situation a little bit. So in terms of RDS Vivek, I mean, you were saying that we really don't know what someone's like until they appear on the debate stage. And I think there's no greater example of that than Bloomberg. Bloomberg coming out, he was this guy, he was this billionaire, he was the Democrats billionaire, the Democrats businessman who was going to come in and just take charge of the election. But he shows up on the debate stage and he was meek and weak and he could not defend himself the way a presidential candidate would be expected to. And I think we're going to really be able to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff in, in those regards here. And Ron DeSantis's hesit hesitancy to really go after people up until this point signals to me he's not very comfortable with it and that's going to be exposed in my opinion on the debate stage and i've seen vivek now speak and debate people frequently he's actually very open to people you know criticizing him when he's on stage and responding to it it's something he's very adept at he's very uh, you know 
in, in you know cele- in the celebrity world there is something known as the x factor it's not something you can kind of you can exactly pin but there's something there's some sort of charisma knowledge competency that all comes together that mixes together and that really makes individuals shine i think vivek over ramos over desantis has that he has that it factor and when you hear him speak i think that really comes through so i think he's going to be the big winner from this debate that's my prediction he's actually going to overtake desantis after the first debate in the polling because i think people are going to see desantis just isn't the kind of politician that people are looking for nowadays for better and for worse i think one interesting factor though is that what we've noticed is that throughout this entire republican primary cycle trump has gone up in the polls if not stayed pretty steady but all of these other people have all eaten each other's votes up the more and more people you add into the mix it's taken away from the existing amount existing people that are currently there apart from trump so one thing that is very interesting is like after this debate i want to see if somebody drops out maybe somebody does drop out i mean i don't really know anything about doug burgum i think that guy should drop out because you need you need less people like i think if you have less people the less quantity the less quantity of people increases the amount of quality of the people that you have so the people that are there if a lot of these people drop out i honestly think if you're not in this first debate you shouldn't even be running you should just be out because there's no point of you running there's nothing special that you can do that nobody has seen before because nobody is seeing you you're not in the picture because you're not in the picture you're basically irrelevant so i think people like elder and suarez and those kind of people they don't even need to be there because they're just making it worse for all these other Tom, Dick, and Harrys because you need an anti-Trump person if these people are make are trying to win that demographic of the anti-Trump person. So I think the main challenge is, is that with this debate, I really want to see out of these people who figures out that they're not worth it. They're not you know worthy of being a presidential candidate because if there is somebody, like let's say Mike Pence. I have never really heard Mike Pence really debate that much apart from his vice president debates. Who knows? Maybe Mike Pence goes the on fly stage. on his head. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Mike <laughs> Pence goes on stage and he's a terrible candidate. Like he just doesn't know anything to, what to say. He doesn't know how to deliver himself. Or on the opposite, maybe Mike Pence goes on stage. He is at 7%. So he's doing better than he's like number four of the 21 candidates. So in reality, even though I call him a loser, he is still better than a lot of these other options in terms of numbers. So maybe he goes up on stage and like, you know, takes out Chris Christie. Like, why would you need Chris Christie? You got Mike Pence. Like, yet something like that could happen. I think that's the one benefit of these things. But I honestly feel if Donald Trump doesn't show up to these debates, nobody's watching. And if if you have a limited amount of people watching, that means you have a limited audience that you're trying to captivate. And I think if it cleans out some of these people, it's a benefit for not only each of the other candidates, but for the party as a whole, because if the party is worried about Donald Trump, because I've heard this from other, like, you know, people that I've talked to that are like in the know, like there are a lot of people that are worried about a Donald Trump presidency candidate, president candidacy, because they're worried that he can't be Biden more than anything else. Like, sure, you need Biden's voter, or you need Trump's voter base, you need Trump to like be there. If Trump is there, he's creating a lot more people to potentially vote that wouldn't have voted before. You're also probably going to get more people on the opposite side that were voting for Biden vote more than they would have voted if Trump wasn't there. Because the thing is like, all of this stuff revolves around Trump. You like him or you hate him, but more people are going to show up because Donald Trump is there. 
So I think the challenge is, is that these other randos, they need to figure out that they're not worth it. And they need to like basically um, endorse one of these other people that is there that they do think is like, you know, capable of being the anti-Trump candidate and support them. Because unless they do those two things, like it's just going to be like, all right, it's Donald Trump. And then it's like all these other randos and all these other randos have less than 20% because there's too many of them. You need less people for them to have more, uh, you know, chances. For the randos, so I think we've already talked about excluding Pence, Christie, others. Let's just focus on Vivek and DeSantis. I don't think we've talked about that yet. If it's just the two of them head to head, what do you think they need to say to actually win this out? Tyler mentioned that Vivek is more charismatic than DeSantis. But what do you guys think? Like, what do you think they actually need to prove on the debate stage or say that's really going to give them a leg up and make them stand out compared to the other? Well, well, it's these in, in this day and age, it's those soundbite moments. It's the 10 seconds where, you know, DeSantis comes up and says something about woke culture. And then Vivek has a witty, sarcastic comeback and it just hits home and everyone's cheering. People like a spectacle. I, politics has become a spectacle. And because of that, I think it's going to be those small little quippy moments that really take off. I mean, that's what we've seen in the past. That's why Trump did so well. So without him there, I don't think the fact that those those moments change, they're still going to exist. The power of them and how much leverage you get and how, how much you can, you know, run with that after the fact, that's up for question if Trump's not there. But I still think it's just going to be those little moments. Vivek making a little comment. DeSantis making a comment. Pence being a wet blanket as he always. I actually disagree with uh, Pratik. I think we, Pence is a known quantity in terms of debates. He's going to be very soft-spoken, but well-spoken. Um, that is just kind of how he is. It's how he always is. He's going to be articulate. But again, and what I've said before is he's just not the candidate people are actually looking for nowadays. I think another thing that I really want to see with Nick's question is like, I do think Ron DeSantis has a stronger base than all these other people. So Ron DeSantis just needs to make sure he captures that base. There's certain things and drawbacks of all these candidates that these people need to hit hard on. I've talked about this with Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy is the only non-Christian candidate running. That is a challenge, potentially. It could be seen as a benefit. They can yeah, also be seen as a challenge. Time. The RDS vote, the people that are voting for Ron DeSantis, they may not move to Vivek Ramaswamy. The people that are voting for Vivek Ramaswamy may not move to Ron DeSantis. So they have to basically do, I mean, he needs to come up with better taglines and attack them than fake Vivek. He needs to come up with something. And I think at the same time, Vivek Ramaswamy needs to be articulate enough. And I think he has been. If you really think about it, a non-Christian candidate going this far, being number three in the Republican polling, and at the same time, being the only one that nobody had ever heard of before, you know, out of all these debate contestants, apart from Doug Burgum, that nobody had ever heard of before they ran. I and think he's so young. That's a, and he's so young. That's all a benefit. Plus, he's the only, he's one of the minorities, too. Like, I mean, there are three minorities, which I think is pretty fascinating. It's pretty cool. But... Out of that, like Vivek Ramaswamy is the most like, you know, he seems like the most, um, well, I wouldn't say presidential looking, but he seems like the most like, you know, he looks like a future of the party. He looks like somebody that, you know, in the future, 10, 20 years down the road, Vivek Ramaswamy may still be, you know, you know, if he doesn't run, if he doesn't win, he still might be relevant. So I think that's some of the things that they need to look at. And I think Ron DeSantis needs to make sure that he captures his anti-woke base because that base does exist. 
And his base was potentially stronger before Trump showed up. So now with Trump being in the race, he needs to capture all those Republican people that would have voted for Trump, but may not want to vote for him again because Trump lost to Biden. He needs to hammer hard on the fact that Trump lost to Biden without talking about the election cycle. And it's a challenge. He has to make sure that he doesn't talk about the election not being rigged, the election not having any faults or challenges, because he's going to lose those people. And we've seen that in the polls. But at the same time, he also needs to talk about how he's the only one on stage that has better polling numbers than Biden and that he can beat Biden if his poll, if they're up against each other. And Trump has lost to him once. And if you vote for him again, he's probably going to lose again. That's what he needs to focus on. And if he doesn't focus on that, then there's no point of Ron DeSantis even being there. Yeah. But historically, I think the argument of I can win the general, but the primary is going to be tough and I might not win. That is never really a great message that's yes. really convinced people of a specific party to vote for that person. You know, it's like one of those. I just think DeSantis is kind of dead in the water. I think Vivek is the only one that had a shot. But even then, he's been vying for the VP spot. He doesn't say anything against Trump. Like, that's part of his campaign. He's basically saying, I actually heard him in a speech. He was like, you know, Trump had a good point when he said X, Y, Z. You don't say that unless you're trying to gain favor with that person. He clearly is. I think he's kind of lining himself up to be that VP spot. He'll be, he, what he's going to say is, I'm going to gift Trump my 10, 15% of votes. And with that, he's going to buy himself that VP spot or another high up, high up position. Um, regardless of how good he is, he is very young. And I don't think he's convinced that he can actually beat Trump at this point. And I don't think DeSantis personally stands a chance. Well, let me say Nick, one thing about the general, yeah. because, Tyler, you mentioned that candidates who talk about winning in the general but losing the primary, it's not good for them. But I think candidates who are winning the primary and talk about winning the general, I, I think it does end up working out. So, for example, Trump is yeah. like, oh, what are all of you going to say when you're up on stage with Hillary Clinton? He's like, I'm going to take her down. I know how to do it. All of you guys are just going to lose, right? And so I think Trump did that. I mean, Joe Biden also, when he was running, it's like he ran as the guy who could beat Trump. That was like his whole thing. That's why people voted for him. <laughs> it's like no one was really amped about Joe Biden. They just hated Donald Trump. And they were like, oh, finally, a guy who might actually be able to beat him. Um, and so I don't know. I think some of these candidates, it's like if, if Ron DeSantis can say that he's going to be Joe Biden, I think more people are going to vote for him. That's why people were even considering him in the first place. But if Trump in some of these polls starts to be neck and neck with Biden or come out in front of Biden, as has been happening recently, then that argument completely goes away. Because, you know, all these people have to be able to say they're going to beat the other candidate are these polls. And so I, I don't know, without that, like, what can polls you really matter. do? Which is ironic, of course, because Trump, when he's like, I'll beat Hillary Clinton, every poll showed Trump losing to Hillary Clinton. And he yeah. would say, oh, I'll, I'll beat her. The numbers say it. And it's like, no, none of the numbers say this. <laughs> so, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's not an exact science, but still pretty close. Um, shall we move on to Mitch McConnell, by the way? Numbers like the truth are relative to Trump. But yes, let's move on to big boy Mitch. All right. So as everyone knows, everybody hates Mitch. So Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate minority leader, tops the unpopularity list in Washington <laughs> as, per, as per a real clear politics poll among GOP voters. At 81 years old, he's the longest-serving Senate party leader, and he's steered the GOP through many wins in his two-decade tenure. The public brands him as a rhino, mostly because of Trump. But the critical query here is how his fellow GOP senators, who all picked their leader voluntarily, 
I truly view him amidst the media scrutiny and Trump's shadow, and time and time again, people pile in behind Mitch McConnell. He seems to be very solid, capable, get stuff done. I mean, we all remember, I, I think it was Mitch McConnell who held up all the Obama Supreme Court justices. Like, the man knows how to work the system. So, Pratik and Tyler, what do we think about Mitch McConnell? Hate him? Love him? Or, eh, do you not care? Pratik, I know you have way more to say than me. Yeah. Let me just go quickly, go just because I know you're going to pop off on this. But he, 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 you can't deny he's a shrewd politician in the real political, in, in the realist political sense. He's going to do what it takes for his party to win. And that's kind of the guy you want to steer your ship if you're a Republican, regardless of what people or the media thinks of him. It doesn't matter. He's a great political strategist. They're going to want him to be there as long as he's willing and able. But we did see he recently had that that health issue where he kind of froze up, might have had a stroke or something while he was speaking. Of course, that could play a part. But we've seen time and time and time and time again, you being old isn't going to be something that immediately kicks you out of your top spot. I think he's going to stay in his position as long as he is able. But with that, Pratik... Pop off. We love the old people. The old people, the elders, they're the they're the biggest sign of wisdom that there is. Was it a geriarchy or something? What, what's it called? It's called oldism. But okay. <laughs> with old people, what I would say is with Mitch McConnell, I think the biggest benefit that he has is he's probably been the most successful Republican majority leader in the history of majority leaders for the party. I think there's a few people like that that always stand out. I still believe Democrats' best Senate majority leader that they ever had was um, Harry Reid. I think Harry Reid was a very intelligent person. He was a very shrewd, and shrewd um, senator. He also was always able to get everybody in line to support him. I think with Mitch McConnell, before Donald Trump, there was always like, you know, a hint that like all these Tea Party people were going to come in and they were going to wipe out Mitch McConnell. Like Ted Cruz had his big like he, he was Ted Cruz was anti Mitch McConnell for a bit, which made him very famous. Um, Rand Paul, Marco Rubio were also like anti Mitch McConnell. They were the they were they were the big three that were going to come in from the Tea Party that were going to change up the whole game back in the day. This is like in 2012 time period. Then. After that, you have this whole movement where it's like, oh, Mitch McConnell, you know, he's he's there and Trump's the president. He's going to get all these, you know, he's going to get all these justices through. But whenever Obama was there, Mitch McConnell was the leading force preventing him from accomplishing anything that he wanted to do in his second term of his presidency. Everything about Mitch McConnell is special where it's like this guy manages to get everybody in line to support him. And you have to remember, there's a lot of anti like Mitch McConnell people that are in the Senate. But in the end of the day, they know that if you have Mitch McConnell there, that means that they can accomplish things in the Senate. Donald Trump has had has wanted to put all kinds of horses to run against Mitch McConnell. He's wanted to put somebody there that is pro-Trump, anti-McConnell, that is more pro-MAGA and not as pro-establishment. Mitch McConnell is the face of the establishment wing of the party. I think the thing is, though, he hasn't had any success either. I mean, if it was up to Trump, he would pick some random politician and that politician would be the Senate Majority Leader candidate that Trump backs to beat Mitch McConnell. Hasn't happened yet. And Mitch McConnell, for all it's worth, he gets all these people in line to actually accomplish things. He's a very good whip. He's able to get all of his senators that are in the party to support him and support all the causes for the most part that he wants. The people that are not supporting Mitch McConnell are not supporting Donald Trump's candidate. And I mean people that are like the flaky people. When you Back in the day, you had people like John McCain. John McCain wasn't going to support Donald Trump over Mitch McConnell. Then you have people like Jeff Flake. Same thing. He was kind of flaky. 
It's part of his name. Then you have Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins. These are all people that are like on the Mitch McConnell train and the people that are on the Trump side, they're always going to support the Republican cause. The thing about the thing about the MAGA crowd of the Republican side is that they always stick by the Republican Party time and time again. And they always support Mitch McConnell no matter what their leader has to say about him. But on the opposite end, the people that are your like, you know, senators that you can't trust that are going to benefit or work with the party, people like Mitt Romney even, those people are not going to support anything Trump says, but they're going to support Mitch McConnell because he's the face of the establishment. So I think the benefit with Mitch McConnell is that he's like still seen as the, as the person that's binding both of these camps together. He's getting the Tea Party people to still support him. He's getting these, um, you know, these people that are out of the MAGA wing to still support him. And then he's getting all these old establishment people and the people that lean left that are in the Senate Republican Party to all support and consolidate around him. And I think there's nothing you can do to remove Mitch McConnell because he may be hated by the regular public, but in the end, he's still the only senator that all these Republican Party branches can come back. And I think that's the biggest benefit that um, Mitch McConnell has. Nick, what are your thoughts on the turtle man? Well, part of it is, you know, with our current political climate, I mean, we kind of pulled the idea for this story from a Wall Street Journal editorial, or not editorial, but an opinion piece published two weeks ago, where the guy was basically saying that integrity, competence, and all these other things that you know, used to be really important in American politics. So, for example, in the 80s, there was a political leader who said, like, there are some causes that, you know, it, it's basically worth falling on your sword for. Like, there are some issues that are so important that it doesn't matter what the politics are like. You need to have integrity and stand behind those issues. That same expectation of personal integrity does not exist. And I think in, a big part of that is the American people just don't expect it from our politicians anymore. We assume that everyone on some level is corrupt, that everyone has some sort of issue. And it's this sort of like permanent pessimism that has kind of infected our system. And our standards are so low and the candidates we keep getting, frankly, we deserve them. Like these candidates keep coming up and doing well because we're fine with them doing well. Like if someone is accused of, you know, beating their spouse to death, like people are still going to vote for them if they have like some witty thing. I, that sounds terrible. But wait, for example, <laughs> wait a second. Like, no, for example, like the guy who was accused of abusing He's not Herschel Walker. No, yeah, Herschel Walker, who like abused yeah, yeah, and no, yeah, granted, yeah. beating to no, death right. was was definitely hyperbole. But like, for example, like someone who abuses their spouse, like if you went back you know, decades ago, it would be like, oh, my God, this person is terrible. John Edwards? They're morally rotten. I don't remember John Edwards. And get rid of them. And, and now it's sort of seemed like, oh, well, that really sucks. I wish they didn't do that. But the Democrats are so much worse. Or, oh, that really sucks. But the Republicans are so much worse. So even though the person is personally very flawed and maybe they're a bad person, it doesn't matter because you view the other side as being so much, so bad for the country that you're willing to tolerate all of these personal flaws in our candidates. And, and it's a sad thing. And so the first time I read the opinion piece, I was like, oh, like, really, Mitch McConnell? Who, like, who cares about Mitch McConnell? Like, what's the point? And it's like, oh, you know, he may be a dinosaur, but he knows how to get things done. And I don't know about his integrity, but like Pratik was saying, like, he very much is a party man. And, you know, maybe on, on some things he, he takes a personal stand, but you know, his, his widespread hatred. It's like he's not feeding into all the election denialism. He's not feeding into a lot of this stuff where it's like you didn't really hear Mitch McConnell say, 
yes, the election was stolen. We need to stop all the presses right now. We need to, like, you just didn't hear that from him. When it would have been very politically expedient and easy for him to do so. So I think that's the main point of the opinion piece. And frankly, the thing is, I just don't think voters care. No, they don't. And it's like, we could talk about bringing morality back to politics, but I don't know if it was ever ever there. That's fair. Like, we've kind of fallen off a cliff in terms of, like, and this is actually a struggle we have on the show, too. And it's not, like, for, for me and Pratik, like, I'll, I'll put up this moral argument and Pratik will say, but you're not going to win. And that's not something I can really dispute. And it's not something I necessarily even disagree with because at the end of the day, it, we're vying for power. And when you're vying for power, you pull every every lever you can and you want to get what you want over picking someone that maybe stands for the morals that you uphold. Like we would like to believe that people would stand for those sorts of things. But we saw again with Trump, with Trump being able to get the evangelical vote. I think that really was the end of any sort of morality in in voting because you voted for a guy that you knew was morally unscrupulous, even though you say you're maybe a devout religious person. And your and your your argument was, well, he he's going to get done what I need done, and it really doesn't actually matter who the man is personally. I think that's the challenge, and that's the benefit of politics. It's I a think, perennial struggle. I think the thing about politics, too, is that it always evolves. There's always a time period where it's the other way around, where the more moral, morally conscious person is the one that wins in the end. I still remember, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember where you had Barack Obama running against John Edwards and Hillary Clinton. So back then, Barack Obama was an actual nobody. He was like Vivek Ramaswamy. They were like actual nobodies that were running at the time. And Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the presumed frontrunner. But then you had John Edwards, the vice president candidate of John Kerry, who was the presidential candidate in 2004 against George W. Bush. Now, with John Edwards, John Edwards was the one that was supposed to be like, he sounded better than Hillary Clinton did. He was, he seemed more polished. He was a lawyer by trade. They were all lawyers, but John Edwards had like fought very like, you know, well-known cases. He was a very popular guy at the time. And then the story came out about like, you know, his wife is like dying and he has an affair with some other woman and his wife is in the deathbed. And that thing really killed off John Edwards. John Edwards might actually be the reason reason why Barack Obama became the president. I think a lot of different things like that do happen and it really kills off people. There was also that one guy, um, the dude that just died, the African-American guy, is slipping my tongue. The Republican guy oh, that COVID, ran... COVID, I know who you're talking about, yeah. Hold on, yeah, let me, I'll figure out the guy's name in a second. But um, this guy that when he ran, he had this, he was like one of the Herman top Cain, contestants. Herman I think, right? Herman Cain, that's yep. it, Herman Cain. Herman Cain was the top contestant in the race. And then Herman Cain had some scandal come out when he was in high school saying that he may he was allegedly assaulted somebody sexually in high school. That thing killed his campaign. And I think, I mean, like this thing, this guy went from being like one of the top options to just being completely derailed. And I think a lot of things like that really hurted a lot of candidates in the past. I think the candidates that usually came up at the top were the people that everybody was like, all right, they're good enough. They might not be the best, but they're better than the other options. I think when you think of somebody like Mitt Romney, that was the case where you had all these different options. Back then, they used to have like 18 candidates. Now we have like 20-some. Back then, he had a lot of potential options and only like 10 people ran and it was like a bigger deal. Now, we just have way too many people. But back then, it was Mitt Romney. Then before that, it was John McCain. And then back back in that time, Barack Obama won because Hillary Clinton was also seen as like a scandal woman lady at the time. 
Like, Hillary Clinton has always been a scandalous lady. Like, it had, it never, like, kind of, like, you never moved faster. Ever since all the stuff Bill Clinton did, that all that baggage carried forward throughout her entire political career. But you always have certain candidates and issues like that that happen where it really kills their political career. And I think nowadays the script has changed because they're, they, people have got to the point where they've realized that it doesn't really matter how morally right somebody is. Like if somebody like believes in God and like is believing to do all the right stuff, because in the end, all these people have always done sketchy things when they get elected. There's nothing special about any of these people. We used to complain about the moral and scrupulousness of Bill Clinton and about how Bill Clinton did a lot of sketchy things when he was in office. Back then, they used to talk about JFK. Like, you know, JFK had all these scandals whenever he was in office. And he was the one that, like, sure, he was popular. because Then he died, which made him more popular. But when he was in office... In our history classes, we would talk we'd talk about how sketchy a bunch of sketchy stuff happened under the JFK administration. I think the same thing now is kind of shifted where it's like, who cares really how morally right they are? What really matters is what they will do if they get elected. And if you elect some of these people that aren't going to be able to win, or if they're not going to be able to do a good job if they are elected, like Jimmy Carter, for example, then what's the point of electing all these morally upright people? Because if they can't accomplish anything, then they're pointless to have. Pratik, now that you yeah. say that, I think that's one of the biggest ironies. It's like we took someone who was so morally wrong, Donald Trump personally, in his personal life, and then it's like you elect him to do a moral act for a lot of the evangelicals. They would consider abortion very immoral and that it was it's the utmost morality to appoint someone to the Supreme Court exactly. to take a stand on abortion. And it's like you were you were choosing this very flawed man as a vessel, which I'm sure they can justify in their own religious doctrine, but like, you know, oh, God works through the, yeah. It's like you could do that, but at the same time, it is a little ironic, like you were saying, that like, you know, at the end of the day, results matter. And, you know, people can overlook all these different flaws of the candidates, and they have for a long time, as long as it furthers a particular cause or, or what have you. So, no, great points. Yeah, so it's the ends justifying the means at the end of the day. But ju ju just quickly, so I, I think what happened, I Pratik, you you basically saying it was a pendulum that goes back and forth. Yeah. I think that, that it's exactly right. We'll move on to Mansion in a sec. Um, but I think they used to hide it better. And I think what happened is people realized that these these figures were never actually morally you know, like these superior moral people, they portrayed themselves to be that. And I think people have become so cynical about that, that they basically said it doesn't actually matter what the person did because you're, you're all pieces of shit at the end of the day. I think people <laughs> exactly. basically gave up on the fact that people can be moral because so many people in the past would, you know, espouse all these morals and not be able to live or abide by any of them. Because you're right, only 20, 30 years ago, I, I point back to this before, it's like, what, whether you think of drug use or not, you know, inhaling or not inhaling marijuana was the big thing. It's like, what a good Christian boy, like Bill Clinton, <laughs> inhale marijuana. And nowadays, it's like, it, it literally has, it doesn't matter at all, because we know everyone's a piece of shit at these higher levels. And they're all drug addicts, think potentially, that too. <laughs> and they're all potentially, they're doing crack in the White House. At this point, it's, and I think the internet and having so much, you know, news and media and videos nowadays really exposed a lot of that as well. Um, but it is a pendulum. We might swing back. But with that, let's move on to our other favorite guy, Mansion. What's going on with Mansion? So the story is called, I'm Riding Solo. 
So Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia is weighing leaving the Democratic Party considering going independent before the 2024 election. He's choosing between a fourth Senate term or a third party presidential run. A former independent Democrat, he's worried about the party's image. Manchin believes the national Democratic brand doesn't match his state's views. His goal is to tackle extremism authentically, like Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, who also went independent. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on Manchin? I don't think Manchin has a shot of winning the Senate the next time around. Republicans are going to win West Virginia, just full stop. It's going to happen. And so for him to, it's kind of an easy choice, frankly, for him to say, yep, I'm going to do a third third party presidential run because, you know, I, I'm really having to weigh running again for Senate. It's like, no, you're not. It's like it's a total coin flip whether he would win the Senate or not. It's not guaranteed. And so, you know, there's not as much risk to turning that down, which is would have been a sure thing. For, for example, like if he was in the southern district of, you know, southern half of New York State or whatever, you know, running there, he would win pretty easily as a Democrat. But, you know, he's not going to win in West Virginia. And the one thing I will say is that by him playing hardball, I think it has given West Virginians this this pretty positive impression of him that, oh, he doesn't just care about his party. He cares about West Virginia. So I think that's mm-hmm. really good. On the one hand, he's got personal brand there. But as far as the third party presidential campaign, what would be weird to me, even though I don't think it's as risky um, as as it's being made out to be, but what's weird to me is that no one likes him. No one likes him outside of West Virginia. And so, like, what is he going to do? Is he going to win a bunch of the Democrats in Wyoming or, or Montana or Idaho? Like, big whoop. That gives you, like, 10 people. You're not going to win an election with 10 people. So, yeah, I don't know. Those are my thoughts. Tyler? It's, and it's already overcrowded. And being a third-party candidate, you're basically guaranteeing that you're not going to win anything. But him turning away from, from the Democratic Party, at this point, I don't think it really matters. Like you said, he has that, you know, name recognition in his own state. And because of that... I think he's going to get a decent amount of votes. He might still win the Senate, in my opinion. I think that's where he should stick. He's not winning the presidency. Don't do not do it. Please don't do it. I think incumbents matter. And I've always talked about this, where if you're an independent candidate, the only reason you're an independent candidate is because you basically used the party to vote win because you chose their name, they selected you, and then you won. Hence, now, because you know you have all the name recognition, you're not one of the, you know, eight candidates that you see on a ballot that you never heard of, apart from the Democrat or the Republican, you know, running in the party. Think about somebody like Kristen Sinema. She hasn't done anything that special in the Democratic Party. She's, like, gone against what a lot of the party platforms. We Republicans like her more than other people because, you know, she supports our causes. That's not a good thing to have whenever you're looking at it from a Democratic side option. But that is the thing. So those people are only getting elected, unless you're Lisa Murkowski and your family literally runs Alaska, you're only getting elected because at one point you were a Republican or a Democrat. So I think that's the challenge with all this stuff when you think about Joe Manchin. Now, at the same time, if I'm going to take a different approach than Nick on the presidential cycle stuff. As a third party candidate, we've never had any third party candidates that have ever won anything. You've had some candidates that are in the third party that have, you know, you know, raised a stir. You had Ross Perot that messed up the election for George Bush Sr. and for Bob Dole. Then you also had some candidates like Ralph Nader that have like, you know, caught a flare with a with a bunch of people in the past. If somebody like Bernie Sanders was to run as a third party, he'd probably do the same thing. Ron Paul was a third party candidate, I think, in the 80s. 
all of those people, they do have some flair about him. I think Joe Manchin is similar, where he is an actual moderate. Right now, the two options that you have are Trump and Biden, who are also actually moderates. The irony is that, you know, we try to talk about, oh, you know, Trump is like, you know, a right-wing nut job, and Biden is like this terrible human being. He's so liberal, and he's so Democrat. Well, we don't talk about that. He's gonna, the, he's gonna kill the economy. That's the general. But those, yeah. that's the yeah. general consensus. But I don't know if I'd call time, Trump a moderate, though. He's still more moderate than everybody else running in the Republican Party. I think yeah. if you look at it, you, yeah. you look at moderates, you have to look at it in the moderate scale. He's not Donald Trump is not a social a conservative that candidate. Can be pretty extreme. Donald Trump has is his main issues are things that are not like hardcore party issues. Like these are issues that you as an average voter can flip on. Like immigration, there's nothing about party really affiliated with immigration. I've met as many Democrats as I've met Republicans that are anti-immigration. I've also met as many Republicans as I have Democrats that are about open borders. Like it happens. It's not one of those things that like is like a really party movement. Same things with other issues. Like sure, we talk about things like climate change. That's a Democratic Party platform. But if a Republican had some opinion about climate change, it's not going to make any difference whether a Ted Cruz says it or a Donald Trump says it. That's not going to make you or break you as a Republican candidate. And most Republicans are not environment, immigration, things like trade, foreign policy. That's all middle of the line issues. All people have opinions on these things. What about you abortion? And that's a, that's a party line issue. And I don't think Donald Trump is seen as a pro-life person. Court justices that's fine. To get rid of Roe v. Wade. That I is mean, fine. He, is, he must but, be seen as that. But for the party aspect, the people that are voting in the Republican Party, if they're all about abortion and they're all about pro-life, they're analyzing all these different factors. But abortion alone isn't what's going to put Donald Trump over the top. It's all these other issues plus the fact that he put Supreme Court justices in. And I think when it deals with the moderate people, Biden has the same problem where he's he's less progressive than all the other Democrats. He's the only one that's not going to make 80 per, 80% of the rich people pay all the taxes. He's not going to make like, you know, he's not going to somehow ban oil and ban fracking and you know, he's not going to take it he's not going to make it his movement to try to like, you know, make everybody have Medicare for all and stuff. Like that's Biden. He's also moderate. And in Democrats, the most moderate person is the one that wins. In the Republican side, it's the most loud person who happens to be the most moderate. But at the end of the day, John, Joe Man, or not Joe Manchin, sorry, John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Donald Trump were the most moderate options in their party. So if you look at it in a holistic scale, I think moderation is what wins you in the party, especially in the end of the day. But with the third party candidate being Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is a legit moderate. There's nothing very polarizing about Joe Manchin. Democrats don't like Joe Manchin because Joe Manchin doesn't support the Democrats. He's like John McCain was for the Republican Party. You could go through John McCain's voting records. The guy voted for the Republican Party like 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, he was going with the Democrats. Like these are not like ideal, ideal people for the party. But overall, people like these people because they're moderate. So I think Joe Manchin has that one thing where he might actually impact the election if he runs. He might be a Ross Perot where he might make 
make it so Republicans may that don't like Donald Trump may vote Joe Manchin, and you might have Democrats that don't like Joe Biden, but they don't obviously don't like Trump, so they might vote for Joe Manchin. Is for whatever reason people love these third party candidates if it's not the Libertarian Party because the Libertarian Party is really useless. But when it's like an actual third party option, they have a chance. So I think maybe the one thing I'll say is I actually think. I see, Pratik, you talk a lot about how these people will use the party and then change their affiliation. I actually think that's the only way to become president as someone with independent views. Just that's like fair. RFK, for instance, you use the party as a vehicle. You don't run third party. You run mainstream Republican or Democrat, but you are moderate. You're just a moderate guy. You're, you say you're Republican or Democrat. You're, you're not really. You're not tied to that. And you use that as a vehicle to become – and the reason you do that is because you look at someone like Trump. He actually changed the face of the party by leading the Republican Party the same way, towards the his way, own too. views. So I think that's what you do. If you're a serious third-party thinker or independent thinker, you, you, you use the crap out of these parties because you have to to have a chance and that's how you that's how you actually make influence and have a chance in the election i don't think he would win the general election either as either democrat or republican but i think that would be the best path if i were uh, advising like an independent candidate to run for office but with that you guys ready to yeah, to move, move on. on here let's move on to has the economy been bidenated so President Biden's attempts to highlight policy impacts haven't str uh, struck a chord as per an AP NORC poll showing a 36% approval rate for his economy handling and 42% overall approval. Despite inflation gradually receding, the cost of living remains high due to labor expenses and subsequent goods costs. Average gas prices in North Carolina have surged to $3.57 a gallon, a stark contrast from $2.38 recorded in 2020. The pressing question is how will the perceived weak economy affect the president's chances against Trump? We all know the economy is always a big issue in elections. So what are your thoughts on Biden's handling of the economy and how it impacts this election? I think this is the selling point that Trump has to win for president. I think Trump has a few selling points. The biggest is the fact that he's not in office. So everything that happens in the in the presidency of Bi Joe Biden is bait for Donald Trump to win people. And I think the same thing could have been said about Joe Biden winning against Donald Trump was COVID didn't happen under Joe Biden. It happened under Donald Trump. So any impacts, any issues that, um, you know, were that took place because of COVID, it all could be tagged on to Donald Trump. And I think that's the one thing here is that when it comes to Biden, Biden is in office. So everything that happens in Biden's office, whether it's intentional, whether it happens by accident, whether it's you know something going on just happening when he's president that has nothing to do with him, maybe it could be like some hurricane, like Katrina that takes place, anything that can happen, it all will impact Biden. And I think that's the biggest benefit that Trump has is that with the economy, the people that are economic voters automatically already think whenever they think of Democrats, they think bad economy. And when they think Republican, they think good economy. So now you're adding that into the entire bigger equation where it's like, yeah, the economy isn't that great. It has become more expensive. It costs more to do literally anything. No one's really making that much more money. You're spending more money. You're getting more money, but it, your value of the money that you're getting is not, you can't do as much with it as you could before. 
So all of those things factored in, I think this is Trump's biggest selling point. If somebody isn't in the general election, this is probably the reason why Trump and Biden are basically tied in general election polling right now. It's like, if somebody was debating, who do I want to support? They don't think of now because Trump's not in office. They're not going to think of 2020 where COVID happened and the economy went to crap. They're going to think of 2017 to 2019 when the economy had its best years probably in the history of the America for in a long time. They're going to think about that because that's what Trump's going to tell, tell them in the narrative. On the flip side, when you think of Biden, Biden can tell you about how the economy is better and how it's improving and all this stuff. But overall picture, you're still looking at your wallets. You're still looking at what's going on. You're still looking at the cost of everything going up. It costs more to buy gas. It costs more to buy milk. It costs more to like literally pay for rent. All of those things factored in, it all kind of benefits the Trump side. So Trump has to sell this as his winning point and Biden needs to focus on everything else but the economy because I think the economy is going to be his downfall and if anything, if you keep highlighting it, it's going to be a bigger downfall. So Biden needs to focus on his achievements and not focus on the things that are going to be his weak links because we know that Trump is going to win on the economy. So if Biden wants to win, he needs to talk about all the things that he did right, not about the economy. Nick, your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think it's too early to tell with Trump and the economy. So, for example, Reagan tripled our national debt. Um, a lot of the cuts that Trump made in terms of regulations and let's say, for example, you know, when he gave us all like a temporary tax cut for the four years and then wrote into law that, you know, after the fifth year, we were all going to have to pay it back anyway. Like he, he ended up doing all these things where it felt really great in the short term. But long term, I just don't know if Trump's economy is really going to be, you know, 50 years from now, if it's going to be looked on, back on as, oh, my God, this was such a powerhouse. This is so great. You know, of course, living through it, things felt kind of nice. But, you know, looking back, like we still haven't felt the full effects yet. So I think that's one very tricky thing about the economy. Like, for example, you mentioned gas prices, food prices, whatever. Do I honestly think that presidents have much to do with gas prices or food prices? No, not really. But at the end of the day, they are the president, they are the leader, and they have to take the blame or the reward, you know, either way. So, you know, for Biden, uh, like, for example, Trump at the very end of it, if COVID didn't happen, maybe Trump would have been reelected, you know, but COVID did happen and he didn't handle it well and he lost. So with Biden, it's like if he doesn't handle the economy well, he's going to lose. And, and that's just ultimately it. And as much as his team is going to come out and say, oh, it wasn't us. We got put in this situation. It, it was it was this and that and whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're the president. And if things don't go well, you have to own it. Yeah. And you were you were saying looking long term, we don't know the effects of presence. Uh, Trump's presidency, but it depends on your framing here. It's like, are we talking about specifically voting? Because people don't vote based off what's going to happen in 50 years. They based off what they see today. And like you said, they're largely just going to blame the, the current administration, no matter how they received it. But also Biden on the campaign trail did say, this is what I'm going to do to fix the situation during COVID. So to some degree, he did make a promise that he would keep the economy up and it wouldn't be, you know, falling as much as, and whether he actually could have changed that or not is a separate question in the minds of people in the minds of voters in the minds of people that, you know, are struggling to, to buy food because it's so expensive. That's a completely irrelevant. And under Trump, like you said, it felt better. And that feeling is going to help people incentivize them to, to, to want to lean towards Trump during the election. Um, any closing thoughts before we move on to the Ukraine? Let's, Let's get into Ukraine. it. All right. So we're going to be closing it off with Ukraine. We have give me money or give me death. 
The Biden administration has requested Congress for over $13 billion in defense aid to Ukraine and an additional $8 billion for humanitarian support to assist with the war effort. The package also includes $12 billion for U.S. disaster funds for addressing climate concerns and southern border enforcement. The total package amounts to $40 billion, and Congress might attach uh, the package to a larger government spending bill to avoid a shutdown. Just, just some more spending here. Uh, before you guys go, I just want to say... I recently saw a stat that said if we invested, I think it was around $40, $45 billion a year, we could give every child born a, a savings account with $7,000 in it. So let's say you, you say you can't access that till 18 or you can't access that till retirement. There would be a, a, a huge amount of money that, that we could actually give to our citizens that for $40 billion is a realistic number. And then you see what we're spending on this Ukraine war, how many tens of over $100 billion at this point that we've sent over to these guys, it really makes you start to think. It's like, are we doing the right thing here? Should we be focusing all of our resources, you know, externally, especially when we have over $30 trillion in debt? So that's kind of where I'm sitting. It's like, I understand we need to help Ukraine. I understand the situation over there. But at the same time, we need to worry about ourselves. There are people in this country that are struggling, especially with the economy. Are there things we could be better? Are there better ways we could be allocating these resources at this time? Of course, you know, the disaster funds, we need stuff. Things things happen. Um, the southern border enforcement, I understand that. Every administration is going to have that to some degree. But all this money we've pumped into Ukraine, I feel like it could be better used for American citizens. I have become slightly more of an isolationist here over the past few months. So with that said, what are you guys' thoughts on this, this spending package? Yeah, so in terms of, look, the overall spending package, unfortunately, both parties are just going to ram up the yeah. debt. That's just how it is. Trump ran up the debt. Obama ran up the debt. Biden's going to run up the debt. It, it's just every candidate is going to run up the debt. I even mentioned Reagan. Like, Reagan tripled the but debt. But it's not how it has like, to be. Like, there were points in this history where we had Calvin it. Coolidge, know, and, and then we had a Great Depression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, but I think as far as the international aid, like, yes, I agree that money spent at home, there are all these things that would be wonderful to fix. It would be nice for there not to be food insecurity in the United States. It would be nice for homelessness not to be a thing. There, there are all these things that... If we spent more money on, maybe we would fix it. I don't really know, though. I think for all the money that we spend, for example, like on healthcare, we spend so much money on healthcare federally as well as at every state level. Like the United States spends a ridiculous amount on healthcare, has worth out worse outcomes on average than other countries, and it's just I don't know. It's something that clearly can be improved, but I just don't know if throwing more money at it is going to fix a lot of these things. So, for example, like. It would be very tempting to say, look, let's not spend any money on anything in involving the military at all overseas. Let's cut all of it. Let's spend it all at home. I mean, Bernie Sanders kind of ran on this. He's like, we spend too much money on the military. We need more money in education, housing, all these other things. Why don't we just pivot here? And the thing is, like, I really don't think it's a binary when it comes to federal dollars. We borrow so much money that I don't think it really, like, I don't think it's really a constraint that, like, oh, man, we sent, like, $10 billion. For example, like, we've spent, like, that's three to four. That's not a realistic no, way to think no, of but, a budget. You but can't it is. Spend no, but it is, Tyler, because all the oh, time God. we the find more money. money. We Federal find more Reserve. money. For example, with Yemen, right? Yemen is another conflict that's been going on. We've spent 3 to $4 billion on aid to Yemen. Someone could make the argument, oh, man, 
why aren't we giving this to American citizens? Why are we sending all this money over here? And the thing is, like, no matter what happens over here, we're always going to find money <laughs> to give to places like Yemen. It's just how we've always been. No, and I'm it's not, not gonna a, accept it's that. like, <laughs> just because you have $100 in the federal budget doesn't mean, oh, we can only spread this $100 out between domestic causes and international. We're always going to raise more money to the point where you could just spend, two, like, for example, if Tyler, if you were in Congress and someone was like, Tyler, we have $100. Are you going to spend $100 to save, to save your mom or $100 to save your dad? You'd be like, no, I'm going to spend the $200 and save both of them. And that's how we operate. No, because then let's save everyone in the world then. Why don't we solve all the problems because we have infinite amount of money that we could allocate everywhere. But that's just not how things work. There's a finite amount of resources. No, there's not. For you, for Ukraine, <laughs> for instance, for, for Ukraine, the U.S., instead of pumping $100 billion, could have tried to negotiate some sort of deal. We could have made Ukraine go to the, to the table with Putin and make some sort of deal. We could have made that happen because we just wouldn't have supplied them with the resources we've had up to but this point. But do we want it's that? Not like no. we didn't, it's not like we didn't have other options. We didn't want that for other geopolitical reasons. Yeah. But all I'm saying is, as an American citizen, it feels like we're just being getting the shit out of the stick to a large degree in terms of the funding. Everyone wants to do their own projects. Everyone wants to be the savior of the world. But at the end of the day, we live in America. We have American citizens. And when the outcomes are not to what expect, to what is expected, pumping money to it purely is not the best option, of course. But in the healthcare situation, certainly more money could help try to alleviate suffering. I would at least try to help our own problems before focusing so lo so much on everyone else's But we problems. would never spend any money overseas, like, ever. And part of no, what I would say... No, but it's not a... Hold on. Hold on. It's not a binary. It's not, you just it's told not, me it was a binary. You no, just... No, 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 Tyler, you just said it's a binary. Hold on. Hold on. We don't have... You're, you're, yep. I understand. You're, you're just making an extreme argument. I'm not saying don't you're spend making money an anywhere ever. <laughs> All I'm saying is we could be much more strategic in terms of how we spend our money. Which is it's what not, I said at the beginning. A, and I agree with that. I just don't think that we should be, be solving everyone's problems. And I don't think yeah. we should have no involvement at all. But it seems like there's a, the wrong there's a balance. greater amount the of wrong focus. Balance. Yeah, that, I would agree with that. I'm saying. I would agree with that's that. That's all I'm yeah. saying. So I'm in the middle <laughs> of this whole argument. So I've thought about this. Before I used to be on the side Tyler is. Now I'm more on the side where Nick is. But there's pros and cons to this whole argument. Now, if you look at it from a larger scale, since 1940s, whenever World War II took place, we took the mantle on that we have to solve all the world's problems. Because unlike all the other empires that existed in the past, we decided to create nations that can independently run with autonomy. You know, we weren't like the British Empire that just conquered everybody or the French or the Ottomans. We we basically were like, all right, you can have your own fee and free and fair election. As long as you don't support the Soviets, we're okay with it. If you support the Soviets, you're part of the Soviet bloc. Other than that, you just have to make sure that you trade with us and you keep us in, on the, you know, on the good side. But at the same time, when we did that, we created things like the Marshall Plan, where we spent billions, then now it'd probably be closer to trillions of dollars to basically redevelop the world. Everything that happened before, we created the world where we we're like, okay, we're going to create democratic institutions. We're going to rebuild Japan. We're going to spend all this money in Europe. Not, you know, Hitler destroyed all of Europe. We're going to create a new institution, something like the EEC to be in place to allow all these countries to consolidate and work together to create their own systems. And then that eventually became the European Union. We also decided to create the mantle to create the United Nations, which that never existed before either, because before people never well, really we had communicated with other nations. But that yeah. also only existed for like a year. And I think with FDR, FDR was one of those, you know, Wilsonites that was all about trying to institute a League of Nations type thing, which you created in the UN. 
All of that stuff aside, I think the argument is, is that all of this stuff has always been backed by American tax money. Anything that has happened in the history of the world has literally happened because of the United States. We can complain about having a $30 trillion debt, but... <laughs> There's a lot of like, uh, you know... Yeah, yeah, but uh, let's, let me... The Rwandan genocide. I'm not trying to create a patriotic argument. I'm just arguing that a lot of these things that have taken place, even the fact that a lot of these countries exist, has happened because of the United States. Had the United States not done the things that they did in the past, things wouldn't be the things the way that they are. Now, we can even argue about all these institutions that currently exist, things like the World Bank that finances all these public projects that happen and trust all these other nations, or things like the International Monetary Fund that provides assistance for financial backing and financial assistance, like a bank, to all these different countries. All of that stuff has existed because the United States put that into place. Now, we can complain about the $30 trillion of debt that we have, but our $30 trillion of debt will never really be paid because it's also debt that everybody also owes to us. Maybe they don't owe us financially, but literally the only reason why like Europe and Japan and all these countries are really a thing is because of the United States. We can't put a monetary amount on it because, you know, what is it, $400 billion back in the day would probably be some X amount of trillion dollars now, but we never asked them for their money. So they're not going to be like, we need to repay our debt. Only other weird country like that is China, but even China knows that if America didn't open up China in the 1970s, China wouldn't be a global power as it is today. All of these things connected where it's like Russia's the only one that's kind of like, you know, has always been our enemy because they've always existed as long as we have in technicality. So all of these things in place, I agree with a lot of the stuff Tyler says, where it's like, you do need to make sure that if your country is like, has problems. Right now, we had the whole Maui thing go on, right? We talked about the gaffe last time where Biden really didn't want to talk about Maui. Maui has like, you know, we, they want to spend like four to $5 billion to, you know, rebuild Maui. We are not spending that money to rebuild Maui. Instead, we're sending all this money to Ukraine so then they can fight a war and continue to lose for another two years because they haven't really got gained anything from all this money that we've given them anyway sure you can argue that ukraine is in their position because of american aid but at the same time we don't know if in two years if they're going to ask you for more money we've only we've already given them like so much money as it is right now so far based on july 10th 2023 we've given them 75 billion dollars in assistance now you look at the holistic scale, you look at the arguments that both sides have placed. Nick has a point too, where foreign policy wise, things don't change. These things are constant. Whether you have Trump there, Bill Clinton there, George W. Bush there, Obama there, foreign policy doesn't really change that much. We still continue to spend billions of dollars in aiding and assisting all these other countries. And all of that is actually because of the stuff that happened in the 1940s under my favorite president, Harry Truman. So if Harry Truman didn't decide that he was going to, you know, spend all this money to help assist all these nations because, you know, FDR created all these policies, but he kicked the bucket in his 16-year reign whenever World War II was going on. So whenever he was making all these tough decisions, Truman had to decide what to do. Now, yeah, if we decided to look at it policies in that aspect and we did, did, did decide to become isolationist as was the way of the past for America, then America wouldn't be spending billions and trillions of dollars and we probably wouldn't have 30 trillions of dollars of debt because most of our debt is not on a domestic issues. Sure, we spend a lot of money on healthcare, but it's still not on domestic issues. Most of our money goes into military spending and a lot of that money goes into aid and trade and everything else that we do with our military. 
So with that, like, yeah, sure, we owe the, all this money in debt, but it ain't like any of these countries are going to ask us for anything because our military backs and protects the entire world. If America didn't exist, Europe doesn't have an army. If America doesn't exist, when there's a tsunami, when there's a hurricane, when there's a terrorist attack, not like China or Russia are going to come out and aid. So that's the thing with America, in my opinion. So I just want to let, let everyone know where my thoughts come from. So what largely changed my mind on this was a book called um, The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. Um, he talks about something called The Big Cycle, where it's essentially the rise and fall of empires from the Dutch to the British to the U.S. to whatever's next. And just explaining like how these tend to go. And generally, once you reach the peak and start on the decline, it's because they've overstretched. And if you look at the decline of empires throughout history, that's the reason why. So it's okay to the argument of, oh, it's always been this way. It needs to continue this way. Nothing can change it. Maybe that's true, but it's going to lead to our downfall. Because this is what happens to every single um, empire that's ever existed. They overstretch. They're, they're, they're fractured in terms of wars. Let's say we fight in Ukraine. We fight in, in, in a, a China Yemen. for Taiwan. We fight in Yemen. We're, we're all over the place. We're overstretched. Then other countries can start taking advantage of us because we don't actually have the resources to manage that. So that's what I fear. So in my opinion, you need to, you need to kind of get ahead of that where instead of overstretching so widely – we need to at least be, it at least needs to be a conversation that's not being had. So that's where my ideas come from personally. And I actually recommend the book for anyone. It's pretty interesting. And, um, and I think right now. manager. He's like $20 billion. Pretty smart guy. And I think right now what's really relevant is the fact that Ramaswamy has a lot of the same ideas about this stuff. Where the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, for all it's worth, has a lot of people that argue the same stuff that Tyler was arguing, that we don't need to be involved in all parts of the world. What has what benefits has it given us? All the world hates us for all the billions of things that we've done for the world. Iraq was a disaster. Ukraine was a disaster. Taiwan, I mean, what was it? Um, Vietnam was a disaster. All of these conflicts, Afghanistan, they'd argue the same thing. All of these conflicts that we've decided to put ourselves into haven't really worked out in our favor since the Marshall Plan and since World War II. Before that, we'd only go into wars where we were going to win and we used to win in a landslide. Then we decided that we were going to help out all these different causes and problems and everything going on in the world. And it hasn't worked in our favor, including Korean War. That's another one. So where it is is that it's a good idea where maybe America should spend more money on its domestic selves. We have a lot of issues in our country. We shouldn't be, if we're a trillion dollar economy, we shouldn't have people that are fighting poverty. We shouldn't have people that are homeless. We shouldn't have like low levels of education. Everyone in our country should be smarter than every other country because half of our money is going to finance everybody else's education. Why are our people all stupid and why are everybody coming to America from other countries? That should be a focus point. I think in the end, America needs to worry about its domestic issues first. That is an argument. But at the same time, is one of those that if you've already invested trillions of dollars in another cause, and trillions of dollars in overall, because we're looking at it in terms of inflation, but like we've invested much more than trillions of dollars over across the entire world. We've spent more money in assisting the world than our global debt right now. Overall, if you look at it from an inflation level, like what value of money was back then compared to what value of money is now. So if you look at all these things and all these issues and you try to decipher it, a lot of elements that you have that Tyler was arguing and a lot of the arguments that Nick has, what Nick was arguing, has merit to it. There's not like, you can't just like be like, all right, we don't want to support the world and you know we don't want to be involved because the only reason the world exists is because of you. 
So like, well, it's like a push you are the problem. War. I it's understand like, that. It's like America is the reason why all these things have taken place. America is the reason why there's terrorism. But at the same time, America no. is the reason. I don't know about that. Why no. countries exist? <laughs> I think it was I think great until that, that one line. Okay, but I still it think on what when time, it when yeah. it deals with when yeah. it deals with terrorism, I'm focusing on a lot of the stuff that happened in the Middle East. Sure, but okay. like overall, like in terms of the whole aspect, there's a lot of pros and cons to it. But I think it's a balanced approach where we do need to spend more money on domestic issues. We shouldn't have people dying of poverty in the United States. We shouldn't have people that are less educated in America than some other country across the globe. Because in the end, our debt that we talk about, like all oh, this trillions of dollars in debt, is financing people in all these african countries and all these asian countries but, to but have, be able to true. finance their like, education a lot of it a lot of it is owned well, it's by indirect. US citizens and then foreign governments yeah, true, and even the u.s government owns a lot of our debt so it's not like we're like true. shelling out money overseas in fact there's it's all, i think it's all triple or quadruple though. the amount of remittances paid by um, africans living in the united states compared to the u.s government just like giving away money for free plus if you look at like what we actually do with the money we give away it's not, we're not giving money away to be nice. We expect it to be paid back and there's strings attached. So it's not like the US is just coming out and saying, oh, here's a billion dollars, go do whatever. In some cases, in some cases, like South Sudan, we'll do that with South Sudan. But other countries, it's like, here's a billion dollars, pay us back, here are the terms. And so that's how it ends up going. And one more thing I wanted to add is, for example, with Tyler, what Tyler was saying about the rise and fall of empires, isolationism, what have you, like, it's got some very strong arguments in favor of it. What I don't think has strong arguments is a bunch of the MAGA ideology, which is, oh, we want to be purely isolationist, but we want the world to kind of respect and fear us, and our military has to be, like, number one. Like, those two things are at cross purposes and don't make sense. So that, that's just one thing I wanted to add. But just kind of a final bow on what I was saying earlier is that, or I didn't really get to this, the average American citizen and the average American company, we benefit from having a global, stable order where American corporations, ships, all, all these other things, the global economy, like the United States rose to greatness after World War II. And, and granted, we were doing really well right before World War II as well. I know we had the Great Depression, we had all these other things, but like the U.S. relative to other countries was actually doing pretty well. We were on the up and up. But then after World War II, part of the reason why we did so well was our engagement with the broader world. And even if you look back to America's founding, like we started off doing well as a country because of all the diplomacy. Like Ben Franklin was out in France lobbying people to help us in the war against the British. It's not like, all he's doing. All, all the, <laughs> but all, all, the, all this stuff, like I just think that the average American citizen benefits more from America's engagement abroad and that when we totally ignore the outside world, things will end up spiraling to the point where we need to spend more money. For example, World War II, if there was some way for us to preempt that, and stop it in its tracks, it probably would have been a good thing. You know, of course, that's all revisionist and all whatever, so it's garbage. But I just think that living today, the average American citizen does benefit from global trade. And part of global trade relies on the U.S. military guaranteeing these rights of safe passage yep. around the world through shipping all these different goods. Like, that's how American citizens spend a lot less on things than we used to, is through this global trade. And why American companies sure. have become so dominant is in part because of the US military and our engagement abroad. But at the same time, it doesn't excuse the fact that we shouldn't have this much poverty in this country. We absolutely need to be doing better on both hands. And like Tyler is saying, 
we probably have overextended right now. I just don't think we totally shrink in, into like nothingness, which, yeah. you know, it, it's a delicate uh, balance to it's strike. It's not an extreme. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know which candidate's going to get it right, but, you know, at least we're talking about it. So that's good. But along the lines of stability, then let me let me take that train of thought. It's like if we valued stability, we wouldn't probably have invested as much in Ukraine. We would have tried to get to the table much sooner because when you when you talk about the idea of balance of powers and not wanting to disturb, I guess, Russia too much geopolitically like on on their uh, Western front, it's like we would have brought them to the table much sooner. So it's like, how much do we actually value that stability or how much are we trying to dominate? That's my question. It seems it seems more imperial to me than it does practical, um, you know, liberal economics. I understand free trade. The whole idea of free trade, like you said, is having free access to all these economies and you can't do that without guaranteed military protection. I'm totally with that. But I would say the Ukraine war overall has hindered economic activity to That's a much true. greater extent than it would have otherwise if we had actually just tried to settle things right away. And I'm not and and as an American, we love sovereignty and autonomy. So to say Ukraine, you're going to have to concede some of your land. That's very tough for us to do. But at the same time, for for your argument, that that would be the most stable way to to approach the situation. So it's like, how are we actually as a nation trying to navigate That's a Trump waters. winning message right there actually think about it <laughs> Trump would argue that if Trump, if he was but I there agree. It's a balance. this I'm war totally wouldn't have there. lasted as long because he would have got Putin on the table to negotiate something with Ukraine he would have said it in his own Trumpian way but the point is that a lot of Republicans would argue says. that that's true they, a lot of people would argue that that is true like for all it's worth Trump and Putin did have a decent relationship I think the thing is that right now, there's no going on the table. If anything, if there was anything that could have been negotiated, it would have been negotiated two years ago into the conflict. But we've been doing this same conflict since literally we left Afghanistan. So that's the challenge is like maybe maybe what Tyler is saying is a lot of points that are good. And I think that is something that if you go back in the 180 realistic political scale, scale, that is something that Trump needs to hit hard on because that is a problem with the Biden administration. Sure, you could argue about Ukraine being a win, but you can also in the same or in same token also argue it that, you know, Biden failed in Ukraine. Because if somebody else was there, we don't know if it would have been better. But the question is that we don't know. If Trump was there, maybe things might have been the exact same. We have zero clue. But Trump can spin it as like, nah, man, if, if I was there, I would have solved this thing in like, you know, 24 hours. Look at Biden. He's taken 16 months trying to accomplish the same goal. Like, he can make that argument. We can argue that, yeah, it's not realistic. But even then, we can make that argument. But we also don't know, like, if Trump was there, what would have happened? But that's a challenge with the Biden administration that they have to figure out because it's not as much of a, this is a win for their democratic primary cycle. It's a loss on the general scale because most people are looking at it the same way as Tyler. If we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars in Ukraine and we got all these other issues going on, maybe we shouldn't be spending all this money and we should just try to resolve the conflict and, because and it's benefiting that it's not benefiting anyone. I flipped. I was totally for supporting Ukraine initially, just to be clear. I'm not yeah. saying I've been like steady on this opinion. No, this no, is just I, where I'm at now. We've all that, switched all. on this because uh, we yeah. keep spending billions of dollars on Ukraine. No, because we didn't and know we how we have long the same outcome, too, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but Nick. Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say one final one final thing is I think Ukraine is different than some of the other conflicts in the world that the U.S. is involved with, like Yemen, like mm -hmm. you know what's going on in Syria or what has been going on in Syria, and all these other places. Is that for um, for Ukraine, like w Russia has been our enemy for like eighty years. 
or when you know however long right since literally since world war ii yeah. stopped so since like just just shy of 80 years right so because we've been enemies for so long and because you know it, it's kind of it kind of permeates the entire culture that like oh the soviets were the bad guys we needed to take a stand like when we supported Af- afghanistan did we have any like cultural affinity with the afghanis when we sent them all these different arms and munitions to fight against the soviets no we didn't but we did it with the idea that oh the soviets well one it was like a, opposing communism wherever you could but another idea is that the soviets got so bogged down spent so much money on their military and ultimately like you, you look further on the Soviet quagmire in Afghanistan is part of the reason why they ended up declining overall. And so I, I almost think of it, I think the U.S. strategically right now isn't thinking so much of, oh, Ukrainian aid is hurting us as Americans. I think it's more so, hey, we got to stick it to the Russians. And the more I, we get yeah. them bogged down, we're going to defeat one of our longtime enemies. And if we can screw them over in a major way now, great. We don't even have to worry about them. All we have to worry about is China. And that's it. And I think if you just need to focus on China, I'm sure some of the, you know, I don't know if this is actually the case, but at least like the strategy becomes a little cleaner and easier as opposed to having to worry. For example, if let's say Russia did grab a bunch of Ukraine. Great. Now you've got Russia that's recently emboldened, is probably going to do another land grab again in the near future. And at the same time that you're trying to defend Taiwan, it's like if they both open up a front at the same time, the U.S. military is going to be even more stretched and we might be overrun in certain places. And so I think just like militarily, probably a good idea that we're supporting Ukraine. But like you guys have been saying, like it comes at a cost. And one of those costs is that we don't have as much money to spend back at home. But again, we print money every day like it's nothing. I, I wish <laughs> yeah. I wasn't so cynical about that. But like, yeah. it's just how it is. I if know. we want to spend it's money tough. on something, we will find a way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I wish money was real. But, yeah, you know. But you're right. But it's like we're, we're wearing down Russia's military, which we want to do. And we're proving to China that they if they go into Taiwan, the world did kind of come around to support Ukraine. So those are two big messaging things that were very positive, at least from the U.S. side. That's kind of partly why we did it. But at the same time, but, maybe we've spent too much money and maybe it's time to be like, yeah. OK, we proved our point. But who knows? Yeah, Politicana listeners, what do you think about that? We would love to know. Email back at themob.gmail.com if you have any uh, comments on that. But with that, any final comments before we close out the show? No, I just think this is the challenge that was going to be the what we think of when we think of the Biden administration in the future. 50 years down the road, this is what people are going to remember when they and think COVID. of Joe Biden is Ukraine. Yeah. COVID is going to be split between Trump and Biden because Trump had yeah. a vaccine before that election. Critique, you're not even thinking Afghanistan <laughs> withdrawal at this point. <laughs> Wait, that's everyone the other forgot. Thing. Isn't that crazy? Like, but literally that's the everyone other thing. forgets. I think that's one thing, though, is that with Biden, like the Afghanistan withdrawal thing, too, like Afghanistan and Ukraine are like parallels of each other, where it's like the same arguments that you could have made with that Ukraine. You can make with Afghanistan, but we spent almost as much money as we did in Afghanistan in Ukraine in a short period of time. Well, one's a defensive so, like, war, one's an offensive yeah, war. It's different exactly. combatants. Uh, it's like, power, think, like you, you know, guerrilla insurgents I, versus big state military. Like, yeah. And I think with Afghanistan, like there are issues are like much worse than Ukraine. Maybe like women don't have any rights. People like, you know, that are women can't get educated. They can't walk around freely without wearing the burqa. Like they don't have rights to property. They don't have rights to free speech. 
all the democratic principles really revolve around Afghanistan. But we let that one go so then we can get involved in this war. And with that, with Ukraine, the irony is similar to Afghanistan. If Ukrainian government didn't have American support right now, and then let's say Ukraine was to eventually, you know, break free from Russia, they have some kind of peace negotiation. Because I think, honestly, America is one of the people that is actually stopping that from happening. You can make that argument because oh, Russia is more pissed <laughs> off that America is supporting Ukraine than whatever their Ukrainian ambitions are. So, like, if you look at it in that holistic perspective, the question is, is that, you know, whenever this other issue was going on, why did the Biden administration in a Trump administration, everybody want to leave Afghanistan? If we were going to get right back into another conflict that actually impacts all of us much less. Like, whatever happens with Ukraine, Americans don't have a personal connection with Ukrainians. But because we were, uh, you know, we were involved in Afghanistan for so long, you do have a personal connection with Afghanis. And if anything, you could even justify going to attack Afghanistan tomorrow. You'd be like, you know, we let, you know, we left Afghanistan. And now, you know, women are oh, basically Pratik, being You should run on that day. message. We're going uh, back to Afghanistan, boys. <laughs> but you get what I mean. Like, it's I know one what you of mean. those, man. Like, well, in terms of justification, you're right. In terms of public support, good luck with that. <laughs> Guys, we're going back to the Middle East, baby. We're doing it. <laughs> Round two. You thought we were done. No, we're just getting started. But hey, with that. That's Politicana 144. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Please follow. Please share. We're here every week. We really do appreciate that. Um, and we'll see you next week. Later.